You know, we were just singing this song, We Believe, We Believe. Sometimes people have come up to me and they've said their faith is weak or they don't have faith, but they want faith. How do I get faith? How do I grow in my faith? And the, word of the, the Word of God says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So I tell people the very first thing you need to do is immerse yourself in God's Word. That Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's hard to understand this because the mechanism's different. But for your body, when you're hungry, you eat. When your spirit's hungry, it has to eat too. What's it eat? Well, it eats several things. First of all, it's the Word of God. That's your number one staple. It also eats fellowship. Maybe that's your number three staple. The Word of God, prayer, fellowship, and service. I had people come up to me who walked with God for years, told me, you know, they study the Bible, they pray, but there's something missing. What is incomplete? I said, what are you doing? How are you serving? Well, I'm not, I'm going to church. That's great. What are you doing for the church? I said, you want to be complete, find something to do. We're talking about belief. I'm going to hit back on that concept a little later. But we're in prophecy right now. We're dealing with messianic prophecy. And I think one of the amazing things about our Bible compared to any other holy book out there is it's loaded with prophecy. Verifiable, provable, demonstrable prophecy. It gives me faith in God. I know I'm on the right path in part because of prophecy. Some of the prophecy in the Bible is pretty straightforward, easy to read, easy to understand. You get it. Some of it is like, what? I have no clue what you just said. And then some of it's right in between. The prophecy we're looking at today, we're going to have to raise the bar a little in our studies. It looks simple on the surface, so I'm going to share it with you. And you say, oh, I get that, Steve. Then I'm going to show you, actually, it's a lot more complex and confusing than that. So my goal is to confuse you this morning. And then to take you through that process a little harder than normal, so we come out understanding even better. I really hope I don't leave you at the confusion spot. If you leave church this morning confused, you email me or call me because I'm going to fix it. But it's my goal not to do that to you this morning. Last week, we looked at two Messianic prophecies. For those of you who don't know, Messianic prophecy is prophecy that specifically talks about the coming of the Messiah. Now, Jesus came 2,000 years ago, but when this stuff was written, he hadn't come yet. And Jesus hasn't come back yet, so some of the prophecy deals with his first coming, some of it deals with his second coming. We looked at, the Bible said, when the Messiah comes, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And you all know Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that was news to them. And it's news to the Jewish community to this very day. Most Jewish people don't know that the Jewish Bible says when the Messiah comes, he'll be born in Bethlehem. I remember when I first saw that prophecy, I wish somebody had taken a picture of my face. It would have been like... Because even being raised Jewish, I had heard about old little town of Bethlehem and all that. I knew Jesus was from Bethlehem. I had no clue it was a Jewish concept. No clue. And then we got into this amazing passage of Scripture written about 700 years before Jesus came. Maybe five, but way before. And it said exactly when the Messiah would come. 
And we looked at an easy uh, interpretation of it. He'd come before the temple was destroyed, and that happened in 70 A.D. But then we looked at all the numbers and we calculated, and we saw how it specifically said he would come right when Jesus actually came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and everybody cried out, Hosanna. Amazing how specific the prophecy was. That was last week. Today, we're going to look at some new prophecy, but we're also going to look at why sometimes prophecy is confusing and how to deal with it when it is. Prophecy is not always straightforward. In other words, the language of the prophecy makes you sometimes scratch your head. And then, prophecy is not always chronological. And that makes you wonder, well, if it's prophecy, then how in the world am I supposed to understand it if it doesn't make sense and it's not chronological? I actually believe that the confusion of prophecy is intentional. God intentionally has hidden some things for future generations. It's just not my opinion. Listen to this. So we've got the prophet Daniel. He's the one that wrote some of this most amazing of prophecies. He's the one that wrote this one we looked at last week where the time was calculated. He's having this vision of angels and of the future, and he, he doesn't understand it. So he goes, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And the angel who's talking to him says, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. It's not for you to know. Go on. Have a nice day. Dude, talk about a cliffhanger. He's a prophet of God. He's given a prophecy. He writes it down. Then he says, what's this mean? Never mind. Even the prophet didn't know what it meant. Go your way. So, not all of the prophecy is actually for us to understand. And you know what drives me nuts? There are actually churches that will split and form whole new denominations or whole new churches over perspective on prophecy. What's up with that? Prophecy is hard to understand. Much of it is intentionally hard to understand. It's only available for the generation it's intended for. And we're going to break fellowship over it? That just, that bothers me. Because love and unity, you know, Jesus prayed right before he died, Father, that they may be one. He wants our unity. And we sit down and we argue about a prophecy even Daniel didn't understand. And we shouldn't do that. Nevertheless, some prophecy is for us to understand. Because we're 2,000 years past Jesus' coming. So some of the old prophecy we can get. Some of the future prophecy we still don't get. There's a passage in the book of Revelation. John, just like Daniel, he's writing down, the seven thunders uttered their voices, and I was about ready to write down, and the angel said, don't write it. It's sealed up till the time of the end. Oh! So, the book of Revelation, most of us believe it's our future. John was going to write down something God didn't want us to know just yet. That generation who's there then, they'll get it. It's for them. Not for us. But having said that, there's still much we can know. And we're going to take a look at some of that. One of the uh, keys to understanding prophecy is actually given by Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Let me read it to you, and then I'll explain it to you. So, Jesus came into a synagogue, and like behind me there, 
the Bible was in scrolls. So it was his turn to teach. So the attendant brought him the scroll. He opened it up to the place he chose, and he started to read. And this is what he read. Uh, unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Very short reading. He just opens up, reads, and sits there. And everybody in the synagogue, everybody in the church is just staring at him, and he's just sitting there. It says, the eyes of everybody were fastened on him. And he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he read an ancient prophecy from Isaiah, written 700 years B.C., and told them it was fulfilled this day. So Steve, how is that a key? Well, let me tell you how it's a key. You have to go back and read the passage from Isaiah that Jesus was reading. Because you know what Jesus did? He stopped reading in the middle of a sentence. He didn't even make it to the end of the sentence, let alone the verse of the chapter. Let me read to you how the rest of that sentence goes. He said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He said that, and he rolled it up and sat back down. To proclaim the, years, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't read that part. Why? Because that part wasn't being fulfilled right then. Jesus was there to release the captives, to bless people, save people, not to judge people. That's coming in the future. So here's how it's a key. I understand that in one sentence, when it's talking about the future, a part of it can deal with one part of the future, and another part can deal with another part of the future. But how do you know which part deals with which? You don't. That's why it's confusing. And that's why we don't get bent out of shape over prophecy. I got a picture I want to show you. Would you pull up that picture on the screen? What do you see? Two basketballs roughly the same size, right? Right? That's, that's, what, that's what I see, roughly the same. The one on the left looks a little bigger, but it looks about the same. <clears throat> These are the balls. It ain't nothing like that in size. So why did that first picture make them look alike? Trick photography? No. It was taken like this. When something is closer to the origin of sight, it looks bigger. When it's farther away, it looks smaller. It doesn't change size. It's just our perspective that is messed up. Let's do a little experiment together. I want you to hold out your thumb and see if you can block me with it. Close one eye, kind of like you're aiming. Do I disappear or most of me disappears? Yeah. So, obviously, I'm smaller than your thumb. It's all perspective. And the closer your thumb is, I just blocked out half the church. It's just perspective. It's how we see things. If you're sitting in front, you only see one ball. You don't... There's no way you could know there's two balls there unless I did that. Prophecy is the same way. It looks linear. Sometimes all you see is that. But that little verse is 
is peeking out the back there and you don't even know it. Ooh. <laughs> Day. One of my favorite photos of perspective. Do you have the, the lady? Isn't that cool? She's holding the sun. She's as big as the universe. Just perspective. You know, we have two eyes. That gives us binocular vision. That gives us depth perception. But human depth perception is not very strong. We're good at seeing things move this way. We're not good at seeing things come this way. Out to sea, if you captained a ship or were a pilot on a ship, you'd have some binoculars that are spread out like this. Because the farther apart your eyes are, the better your depth perception. And the more distance you have, the more better perception you need. Well, Scripture is like this. And there's no way people can understand how the prophecy lines up, which part speaks about now, which part speaks about then, without divine guidance. For some of the passages of Scripture, the divine guidance is there so that we can understand. For some of it, it's hidden until the time that God chooses to reveal it. At least the two passages I mentioned, the time of the end. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's the prophecy we're going to look at this morning. It's complex for several reasons. This being one of them. It looks like it was supposed to be fulfilled in the days it was written. You look at it in context. And I tell you a million times over, the key to understanding Scripture is context. And I tell you, the second step to understanding Scripture is context. And the third step to understanding Scripture is context. But with, with prophecy, you've got to throw those rules out the window because context doesn't help. But if you can analyze it with a little hindsight, already knowing what you're looking at with some divine guidance, then it starts to make sense even in context. And what I'm going to do with you this morning is we're going to look at Isaiah 7.14 in its context show you why it looks so confusing, and show you what it really ends up meaning. On face value, not confusing at all. Listen, you know this verse probably because we sing it every Christmas. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Say, Steve, that's not confusing at all. That's a straight-up verse. Yeah, out of context. But when you slip it back into the context, it becomes very confusing. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But before I do, I want to tell you about the rabbinic application of this. You know, the rabbis of today, not the messianic ones, the non-messianic ones, don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And they say, well, what do they do with Isaiah 7:14? Because they don't believe in the virgin birth either. But the Bible plainly says it's a virgin birth. Well, they'll say that Hebrew word virgin doesn't really mean virgin. It just mean, means a young woman. Now, if you're trying to share your faith with somebody who's Jewish or has Jewish influence, and the response comes back to you, oh, if you knew Hebrew, you'd know it doesn't really say that, that'd shut you up pretty fast, wouldn't it? Because you don't know Hebrew. Fact of the matter is, it shouldn't shut you up at all. It's not that difficult to understand, even if you don't know Hebrew. Here's what I mean. Obviously, we have a disagreement over who Jesus is. But Christian people obviously have a prejudice or preconceived notion, their belief is he's the Messiah. Jewish people are prejudiced or preconditioned to believe he is not the Messiah. So nobody can be saying, hey, we're looking at this totally unbiased. But there is an unbiased witness. 
because there was an Old Testament written before Jesus was born. It was written not in Hebrew, which is being argued, but in Greek. And they translated this verse straight up with the Greek word for virgin. So now we don't have to be a language expert. We can just say, your language experts, the Jewish ones, before Jesus was born, had no problem translating this as virgin. So I believe what your experts said before the prejudice stepped in, I'm good with that. It's called the Septuagint. It was the Bible in use in the days of Jesus. It was the accepted Jewish Bible in Greek. And the word that's used there for virgin is the word parthenos. How many of you have ever heard of the Parthenon? Let me see your hands. Yeah, same, based on the same word, Parthenos, Parthenon. So I went to look up the word Parthenon to see what the definition for the word was. I'm at the website ancientgreece.org. It's one of the first ones that came up on Google. And I also compared it to another place to make sure it was straight up. Here's what it said. The Parthenon. It was dedicated to the goddess Athena Pallas, or Parthenos Virgin. So we can argue about the Hebrew all day. We don't know Hebrew. We don't know Greek. But if the Jewish community says it doesn't mean virgin today, we can just say it used to believe it did before we argued about Jesus. So from a non-biased perspective, I'm sticking with exactly what it says in the Septuagint and in my Old Testament and in my New Testament. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. That's the face value. But the context is much more confusing. It's confusing because the context is historical and we don't know the history. And there's several people mentioned and the people mentioned in the chapter are mentioned by different names, the same people. So when you read the chapter, you don't even know who they're talking about, let alone what was going on. Then trying to understand the Messianic prophecy, most people just skip because it's too confusing. We're not going to skip this morning. I'm going to help you understand the chapter. Hopefully when you came in this morning, you got a little table, a little chart with some names and dates and stuff, well, names on it. It's up on the screen for those of you who didn't pick one up, and you can pick one up on the way out because the handout has a little more detail than the one up on the screen. I want you to understand all the players in this chapter so you're not scratching your head when we read through it. Notice across the top, we've got nation. We've got three nations who feature in this chapter. The nation of Judah, the nation of Israel, and the nation of Aram. Aram today would be called Syria. But back then it was called Aram. But you can call it Syria. It's the same land area, the same people, more or less. Now the king of Judah is mentioned, and his name is Ahaz. But he's also called the son of Jotham and the son of Uzziah. The king of Israel is mentioned, and his name is Pekah. He's also known as the son of Remaliah. So in one verse he's called Pekah, but in another verse, it just says son of Remaliah or Remaliah's son. So you've got to know that Pekah is the son of Remaliah or you're just like, who's he talking about? And that's why we're looking at it up front. And then the king of Aram is a guy named Rezin. So we've got Ahaz, Pekah, and Rezin, and they have different names in the chapter, son of Remaliah being one of them. The capital of Judah, which is mentioned, is Jerusalem. The capital of Israel is Samaria and the capital of Aram is Damascus. Now, I bring this up because they can mention Ahaz, they can mention Judah, or they can mention Jerusalem, and it's talking about the same area. But if you don't know that, you don't know it's talking about the same area, and that's why I give that to you. A little map I think I've got for you up here. 
just to show you the land that we're talking about, they're almost lined up. When you look at a map of the Middle East, there's two landmarks that can grab you immediately. I'm talking about Israel specifically. Two bodies of water. It's Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. That's it. That's all you're going to see. There used to be another little lake up here called Hulda that they're actually re... They drained it when Israel became a nation in the 40s or whatever. Now they're starting to turn it back into a wetland park. So we might start seeing another little lake up here called Hulda. What you need to know is Judah or Jerusalem is down here in the south. You can actually see the Dead Sea from Jerusalem. It's not that far away. See it on the horizon. Okay? So you know that Judah and Jerusalem are down here. Israel, the northern kingdom as it's called, is up by the Sea of Galilee. So that's a real easy way to put it. Now Syria was north of them up in here. Okay? So it's just boom, boom, boom. Up we go. These are the nations that are involved in this story. Now Syria, or Aram, was a powerful enemy of Judah's. They could beat Judah, okay? They were to be feared. Israel was sometimes friends, sometimes enemies of Judah. And they were po more powerful than Judah. And they were to be feared. What's happening in this chapter is Israel and Syria, or Aram, are making a confederacy, a confederacy to attack Judah. No hope. There's no hope. They can't win. They're scared to death. Let me read to you. Oh, by the way, there's some other words mentioned. I told you the northern kingdom, the capital was Samaria, but it represented ten tribes. The biggest was Ephraim. So sometimes Israel is just called Ephraim. So it could be called Israel, Samaria, or Ephraim. The southern kingdom was where King David's dynasty was. He was from the tribe of Judah, and that's why it was called Judah. But sometimes it's called the house of David because it's David's dynasty. And it's called all those things in this chapter. All right, now we can get into the chapter, and hopefully it won't be too confusing. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they couldn't overpower it. Now the house of David was told, remember, Judah, the southern kingdom, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Syria has allied itself with Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz, Judah, the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by a wind. They were scared to death. There was no way they could beat this confederacy. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, She'er Yeshuv. Go out to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road of the washerman's field. Isaiah was told by God, the king is going to be over by where they wash clothes. Take your son, She'er Yeshuv, and go meet him. Okay. So off to Jerusalem he goes. He's probably already in Jerusalem. Goes to the washerman's field to meet the king of Judah. Say to him, so here's the message you're going to tell the king of Judah. Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Don't freak out. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Aram 
Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says, it will not take place, it will not happen. Wow. You know why I said, wow? Ahaz and Judah didn't like God. They were not walking with God. They did not appreciate God. But what does God do? He nevertheless sends them a personal prophet to tell the king, don't worry. He could have let him worry. He could have still delivered him and let him worry. But not only did he deliver him, he delivered him and told him not to worry. Why? They didn't deserve that kind of kindness. They didn't deserve that kind of love. Well, that's the thing about love. Real love isn't deserved. It's given despite whether it's deserved or not. You know, I was talking to a guy the other day and we were talking about marriage and how hard marriage can be. Uh, every human relationship is hard at one time or another. Sometimes you fight with your best friends, wonder if you're ever going to see him or her again. Sometimes your cousins, your uncles, your siblings, you fight. Relationships are hard and the closer you are, the deeper those wounds feel. Marriage is the closest relationship on the planet and that's why it's the hardest. But we were talking about marriage, and he said, you know, he's been asked more than once a little advice on marriage, and he said, don't fall for the 50-50 thing. He says, it's not 50-50, because that means you're going to wait for them to do their 50 before they wait to do their 50, and you're never sure if they do their 50, and it's not going to work. He says, it's not even 100-100. He said, just give 100%, and don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about whether they give their 100%, you give yours. That's what makes a successful marriage. And he says he gives the same advice to the other spouse. Love isn't about, will I get mine? Love is whatever I'm going to give. That's God, you see. Read the Bible. That's God all over the place. He doesn't wait till people worship him before he blesses them. He doesn't even bless them when they stop blessing them when they start worshiping demons. He still blesses them. He loves unconditionally. He loves and that's what he wants us to be about. So that's why I went, wow. He sent a prophet to Ahaz. Why? And here's what he said. I've read part of it. Don't worry. It will not take place. It will not happen. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. And if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That's quite a message from God through Isaiah to Ahaz. So let me sum up the chapter, and then we'll look at that prophecy that I've been ignoring up to this point. Ahaz was king of Judah. There was a confederacy of Syria, Aram, and Israel to come in and destroy Judah. They were scared to death because there's no way they could have won. But God, in his gracious mercy, decided to deliver them just because he's God and wanted to. He had a plan for them. And he sent Isaiah to tell the king, don't sweat, I've got this one. In verse 8, he said, Ephraim would be ruined within 65 years. And in verses 10 through 14, he said, ask me for a sign. Here's where the context comes in for the prophecy we've been waiting on. Ask me for a sign. In the highest of heights or the deepest of depths, I'll give you a sign. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. You see, Ahaz was such a godly spiritual man. 
that he didn't want to put the Lord to the test. He was such a godly man that he thought it was better to disobey God than to obey God. How many of you have ever met godly people like that? Let me see your hands. Don't be afraid. They're hypocrites. They talk a big talk, but then they don't do anything that's right. They're just phonies. Nobody likes a hypocrite. Oh, I'll never put God to the test. God said, ask for a sign. When God says frog, you jump. Besides, he was being gracious. But Ahaz refused. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my Lord God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now let me point out the problem. Let me point out the solution. Hopefully by now the problem's obvious. This is supposed to be a sign that they're not going to be destroyed by Aram and Israel. The sign of 700 B.C. that is a messianic prophecy for 700 years later about Jesus. How is Jesus being a, born of a virgin 700 years later a sign to them? It's not. Therein lies our problem. It looks like he says, ask for a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. The sign doesn't apply. That's not very helpful. You've got to look a little closer. And you've got to understand this. Then it will make a little bit of sense. By the way, I don't want to lay these down again. So, guys, hold on to those for a little while. I might want them back later, okay? Thank you. We'll talk about the Hebrew, but we'll see with a close eye, you don't even need the Hebrew. The English works. Ask, verse 11, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Would you put that, that up again, verse 11? See that little S after the word ask I've given you up on the screen there? That's to let you know that it's singular. God is talking to Ahaz and only Ahaz when he says, ask for a sign. Remember, this is a sign for Ahaz not to worry about the pending invasion. So God tells him, ask for a sign. Now, the reason I said you don't need the Hebrew, obviously it's in the singular in the Hebrew, but in the English it's not. Unless you have a King James and understand how King James works, then you'll know. But most people don't have a King James, and those who do don't understand how it works. The yous and the these and the thous indicate plurality or singularity. So it helps to understand the Bible better. But you can tell by the context, he's only talking to Ahaz. Go talk to Ahaz, tell him this. But then, in verse 13, Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Now he's not talking to Ahaz anymore. He's talking to the whole nation. That becomes obvious in the Hebrew in verse 14, which is our prophecy verse. It's in the plural. So let's pull up 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You, Ahaz, no. You entire house of Israel, Judah. We're talking about something different now. So it's obvious, if you're into the Hebrew or into the King James, that he's talking to somebody else now and about something else now. He switched. We went from big ball to little ball, just like that, boom. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Then it switches back. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread, look up at the screen, look at the word you, back to singular. 
the land of the two kings you dread, Ahaz, will be laid waste. So, there's supposed to be a sign revolving around a boy. But there's two boys in this story. Do you remember? There's Emmanuel, with the big switch to singular. And God called Isaiah and said, go to the washerman's field with your son, Sha'er Yeshuv. Why is he in the story? Because he features right here. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, Sha'er Yeshuv, not Emmanuel. That's where we're getting the big switch. So we're talking about Judah then, we bounce into the forward, into the future, and then we bounce right back. Well, how could you possibly know that, Steve? Back then, they couldn't have. It wasn't for them to know. It's for us to know with our hindsight so that we might understand that God had it all planned out that Jesus would come, be born in Bethlehem of a virgin. Without divine guidance, we cannot know. But the Bible gives us divine guidance. See, what I just shared with you is brilliant. I didn't come up with it. That's why I can say that. You know, I got that out of Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book, and I meant, man, dude, you're brilliant. But one could still argue against it. It's not ironclad. We need something a little more ironclad. So God gave us another ancient Jewish text that interpreted that one that I just read for you in Isaiah 7:14. You may not think of it this way, but the book of Matthew is a 2,000-year-old ancient Jewish text, and here's what it says. This is how the birth of the Messiah, Jesus, or Yeshua, came about. His mother, Mary, Miriam, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, before I read further, I've got to take an aside here. Islam is one of the world's biggest religions, and it's extremely popular right now because of, you know, terrorism and people blowing up and wars everywhere and Islam's at the heart of it. And so they're very popular right now. Everybody knows about Islam. It doesn't mean all Muslims are terrorists. It just happens to be that most of the terrorists today are Muslims. And so we're always hearing about Islam. Some of what we hear isn't good and some of what we hear is good and some of it's prejudiced and bent. Listen, not all Muslims are terrorists, but they do all need Jesus. All of them need to be saved just like all people from every other religion need to be saved. But the reason I'm bringing up Islam right now, it's one of the world's biggest religions. They think we believe that Jesus is the Son of God because God and Mary had relations and made a baby. Yeah, no wonder they don't want to believe what we believe. So we have to unlearn what they've mistakenly heard. That's not what we believe. You should have seen her face. She was like, I believe that. Yes, that's what they think we believe. Well, it says she's with child of the Holy Spirit and he's called the Son of God. That is true, it all says that, but that's not what we believe. What we believe is that God simply impregnated life into her miraculously. That's all. The God who made human man out of dirt took a piece of him and made a woman, he can do that. Nothing weird about it. So this concept of God's, God having a son has nothing to do with physical sexual relations. We need to let Muslim people know that so they can know a little more about what we believe and understand that maybe what they've learned about us isn't right and that might open up their minds to learning a little bit more. 
Okay, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, if you paid attention to the detail, I just said they were engaged, now I just said they were married and had to be divorced. What's up with that? Well, this has to do with the way marriage worked back in those days in ancient Israel. The engagement was formal and official. That was it. You wouldn't get engaged and then not get married. That was unheard of. They went together. Engagement was part of the marriage ceremony, in a sense. It was the first step in the long marriage process. So, if you want to end the marriage, end the engagement, you need a formal decree, a separation, a divorce. And that's why it says it that way. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want exposure to public disgrace, his unwed fiancé pregnant... Listen, I'm a good guy. I don't want to humiliate you. Let's just separate and move on. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's from God. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So, we've got Ahaz of the house of David, and now we've got Joseph of the house of David. Ahaz was told, ask for a sign in the highest of heights or the deepest of depths, and I will give it to you. No! Because he's disobedient and disrespectful to God. Joseph has a pregnant, unmarried fiancé and an angel says, trust me. She's pregnant from God. Take her as your wife. She's not unclean. And he obeyed. See the difference? A man of God does what God says and trusts God. Ahaz wouldn't even ask for a sign. Why a virgin birth at all? Why was it even necessary? Why didn't God just poof a human being or come down to earth as a human and die on the cross? Couldn't God do that? Well, there's a hint to it in Isaiah 7:14. The, um, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Imanu, with us, El, with us God, literally. There's a hint there to his divine nature. See, if Jesus was just a regular human, he could die. But he wouldn't have the ability, the power, or the holiness to atone for our sins. If he was God and not human, he couldn't die. God can't die. But only God can make atonement for sin. Only God's holy enough and powerful enough to make atonement. So he had to be both human and divine. So he had a human mother, so he could have a physical body, which was human. 
but he also had to have a divine father so he could be divine to make atonement for sins. That's why the virgin birth was necessary. There is no other way this could have been done. So God did the amazing. He did the remarkable. He did the miraculous because of his great love. He wanted to redeem people, and this was the only way he could do it. The Old Testament laid out the pattern. Listen to what it says. The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for the life. There has to be bloodshed to save humanity from its sins. But a cow or a sheep wouldn't do it. It has to be like for like. You got a human sin condition, you need a human savior. Cow ain't good enough to redeem a human. Only a human's good enough to redeem a human. But a regular human, maybe, theoretically, might be good enough, maybe, to redeem himself or one other person. But what about the whole world of all human history? You need a superhuman. You need a God-man to do that. And that's why the virgin birth was necessary. The New Testament puts it this way. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, hopefully all this made sense. Let me put it together. There's a passage of scripture in Isaiah that says a virgin would have a son called Emmanuel. Out of context, it makes perfect sense. You just pull it out of Isaiah and put it in Matthew. It works. But looking at it in context, it's a bit confusing. First of all, it's confusing because people argue over whether the word even means virgin. And I told you, based on an ancient Jewish translation of the Bible before Jesus was born, it means virgin. Also, it's confusing because the context seems to indicate it was for their sign back in those days. But when I taught you a little bit about prophecy and how there's a switch from the singular to the plural, they're going back and forth from Emmanuel to Sheher Yeshuv. And one speaks to the future, just like that verse Jesus quoted and stopped in the middle, this verse speaks to the future. Their future, our past. There's plenty left in the Bible still for our future. Wish I could tell you what it all means. I can't. But I think I have the big picture. And it goes something like this. The world is heading towards Armageddon and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But before all of humanity destroys itself, Jesus will come back and he'll stop it because of his great love for us. Between now and then, every human being on the planet has a decision to make. The decision revolves around the very instruction that Isaiah gave Ahaz. Listen. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Ahaz did not trust in the Lord and did not follow him. Joseph did. Some of you do, some of you don't. So my instruction to you this morning is the same that Ahaz was given by Isaiah. Trust in the Lord. Follow him. Stand firm or you will not stand at all. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for showing us the amazing attention to detail you put into your word and letting us see the power of prophecy and the way of understanding that which you have fulfilled through divine guidance. I pray, Lord, that faith would come by hearing the word of God, that we would all trust you 
and believe in you and stand in that faith, not like Ahaz, but like Joseph. Lord God, breathe your Holy Spirit upon us that we might be everything you want us to be, that we might do everything you want us to do. Help us to be loving, selfless, united, and kind. Lord, if you do not help us, we cannot do these things. But if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen.